I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Welcome everybody to episode 20 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. It is wonderful to have you here as always. This month we are discussing the very important topic of compassion fatigue and as we enter the Christmas break and holiday break, as many of you are preparing to take a break from all the work you've done this semester, indeed all the work you've been doing the last year, I think this particularly important subject matter to cover because certainly it's something that many of you, whether you're familiar with the term or not, may have experienced or are experiencing in recent months or it's something that maybe you need to be aware of. The person we speak to today is Sasha Masumi, who currently serves as an Assistant Director of ResLife at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. At Miami, Sasha supervises a staff of 11 live-in professionals and assumes a departmental leadership and coordination of professional staff training and development. One of her professional passions includes reducing the stigma that surrounds mental health and furthering the conversation around how those in helping professions, such as student affairs, can minimise the impact that secondary traumatic stress has on their profession and, of course, our own well-being. Many of the ways that Sasha likes to de-stress is through her love of photography, playing with her dog, who gets mentioned on this podcast, soccer, hiking and visiting the Oregon coast. If you'd like to reach out to Sasha after this episode, feel free to connect with her via Twitter and her handle is at Seasons of Sasha. Or if you happen to see her at a conference anytime soon, feel free to walk up to her and start a conversation about this very topic. In the meantime, as always, we hope you enjoy. Sasha, you are very welcome. and I'm extremely excited to have you on the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. Um, for those who are unaware, I first met you and came across you way back in 2019 at the Akuawai Annual Conference in Toronto, which was an absolutely amazing conference, where you spoke about the topic compassion fatigue. And I have to say at the time, it really spoke to me. It was almost like you were talking just to me and I was the only person in the audience and it really resonated with me so much so that when Rob and I were planning our next episode I was like we have to invite Sasha because her presentation was just fantastic so for those who weren't at that conference who weren't lucky enough to be there could you perhaps take us back to 2019 and that presentation in particular and why you chose to speak about that topic and what it meant to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, I was first sort of introduced to the ideas of compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress when I was a very new professional, um, actually my first year as a full-time uh, resident director, which is at the University of Oregon in, in the state of Oregon in the United States. And we had a student um, who died by suicide. And already that was a situation in which, you know, you go through training, but until you really experience it, um, you don't know how that's going to affect you, how that's going to affect your staff. And I felt like I was prepared to help the student populations that knew um, the student who passed. I was prepared to maybe prepared to help the RA who was in that community. But what I wasn't prepared for was the rippling effect of that experience, that death, that trauma, where it could trigger things in other students and other staff members. And so um, I had a friend of mine who actually was in graduate school for um, counseling. 
And he and I were having a conversation and he said, well, this sounds a lot like vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress. And I said, what, what are those words? Um, and he shared with me that there's this concept that you start getting um, fatigued, you start becoming emotionally and physically exhausted when you're dealing with traumatic incidents over and over again in helping professions. It was things that was noted, their research for with nurses and doctors who had experienced this idea that when you help someone else through their trauma, you take on a little of that trauma yourself and you become a lot more desensitized to trauma. Every time you work with a traumatic situation, particularly one where there is some distance, you weren't the actual person that went through the car accident, but you're helping somebody who went through a car accident, you become a little bit more desensitized each time to the world around you. And that starts building up, it piles on. Um, and that's sort of the basic foundation of what compassion fatigue is, that physical exhaustion, that emotional exhaustion from repeated traumatic experiences that you're helping others through. Um, and the clinical term also is secondary traumatic stress. They're not they're not interchangeable, but they're often used interchangeably. There, there are slight changes in their definition, but this idea that you take on the trauma secondhand of people you're helping. Um, and as a 25-year-old at the time, um, I was I took a step back and I thought about my own experiences as an RA and my own experiences in grad school, my staff's experiences, and I said, huh, this, this fits. This fits what I've seen, what I felt. Um, and since then, that's been sort of a passion area of mine is really just normalizing those conversations with people. And um, I'm lucky enough that that same friend of mine um, actually took that topic and, and ended up getting his PhD um, and researched um, RAs in particular and uh, secondary traumatic stress in RAs. There's so much to unpack there already, which is in one sense quite exciting. What stuck out for me is when you presented this particular topic uh, a couple of years ago, I had never heard of the phrase compassion fatigue, but I think I probably knew it as burnout or something similar to that. And when you were presenting the topic, I had this flashback while I was sat in the audience to one of my first incidents that I had as a property manager, whereby we had a fire, we had to evacuate some students, uh, one had to be hospitalized for smoke inhalation, I had to deal with parents, it was international students I was dealing with at the time and the parents were calling from another part of the world concerned about their children as you'd expect. And there was so much to do that day in terms of dealing with the incident and dealing with the students and looking after everybody that was impacted by it. At the very end of the day, some like seven, eight, nine hours later, my boss is on site with me checking in how things were, what needed to be done, how the students were, what repairs needed to be done to the property. And then I just broke down because everybody had been asking everything of me. I was so concerned about the, the the students and everything they needed and making sure they were safe and unwell. I kind of just, I just broke down and cried and I just didn't expect that to happen because like you said, you're prepared to help other people. You're prepared to help the students or the RAs, but you don't think about yourself in those moments because I guess maybe part of it is adrenaline and you're there to fix the issue and make it better. But the impact on you, you never really like no one teaches you about that. You kind of learn by doing almost, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it, it's it's having had that experience, unfortunately, having um, experienced traumatic situations or helping students through traumatic situations is when you really understand your own limitations or you start really understanding where your... Um, you know, what level of fatigue you're at, where your burnout is, you know, compassion fatigue is really burnout plus that secondary traumatic stress. So being exposed to trauma secondhand, 
multiplied behind your burnout um, is where you start getting compassion fatigue. And so um, it's really hard to teach that in a classroom setting because everybody is at different, you know, uh, stages or susceptibility to it. Um, there's nothing right or wrong with you just because you're more susceptible to burnout or more susceptible to um, secondary traumatic stress doesn't mean you're bad at your job, but it's something important for you to know about yourself, which is which is actually one of the reasons why I hesitate sometimes to talk about it, particularly with younger professionals or RAs, is I don't want them to think that just because they score high on a susceptibility scale that they shouldn't be in the role. All that means is that you need to be clued in to how this affects you. That's an interesting point. And I think one of the tie-ins with that, I suppose, is, and I'm sure Rebecca and indeed Sasha, you'd hopefully both agree, is that student affairs and student services here in the UK tends to a attract people that, that really do care about our students. We are all in these roles and you know, we're not in it for the finances. We're in it to be there on the front line to help students, to give them a good experience. And it is a very different profession to something like nursing or being a doctor or being a paramedic or something, but equally students are there for years of their life at a time and experiences are bound to happen to them and are bound to come through your door and to your office. And it's interesting because for a field that seems so focused on care and frontline support, that it is something that, that can be very easily overlooked, certainly in the UK. I mean, just in my personal experience, I can't think of a role that I've started where one of the first conversations or any conversation revolved around what to expect and how to perhaps handle that that stress and that trauma that you may you may get despite the fact that the field we work in is perhaps a very common occurrence this sort of thing it, it's a, something that we all have to be prepared for it's, it's, I just find it quite interesting that it's maybe not a conversation that comes up too often yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I, I've actually um, really enjoyed, I, I presented at a cool eye and that was to professional staff, but I actually really enjoy taking this topic and talking about it to um, undergraduate students and thinking about those student leaders. Even when I was a RA that at this point was, you know, about 15 years ago or so, the role has, has shifted so much more to crisis response, more to mental health and helping students through that um, because RAs are the ones living with the students. Um, um, and they're undergraduate students who are trying to support other students going through things. And so I've taken this topic to, um, you know, in, in the U.S. we have student leadership conferences or, or we, there's an organization called NACUR, which is a lot of student leaders, uh, specifically those that are in like hall governments um, in their communities or resident assistant roles and presenting this topic to them. And again, I, I use a tool um, that was originally used with nurses called the ProQual, which is a, a quiz that you can take that kind of talks about your compassion fatigue level, but it also talks about a, a, a qualifier called um, compassion satisfaction. And so it really is the idea of how much satisfaction do you get out of helping people um, and really talking about how those two numbers can offset you know, themselves. And so thinking about your susceptibility to compassion fatigue and being aware of it and, and thinking about how do you take care of yourself um, and what are ways to mitigate that that effect and you know the number one way to mitigate it is to acknowledge it exists and to talk about it um, and talk through those traumatic situations that you're you're dealing with or you're helping others deal with um, but also being aware of the satisfaction you get from the role you know I the example I use and again yes working in in with residents and working on a university campus is not the same as being an ER doctor um, but I use the ER doctor as my example you know when an ER doctor goes to 
work, they're probably expecting to lose several patients that shift. Like it's just a reality of their role. And if they focus on this, the patients that they lost, um, they could spiral into major burnout and major grief. But if they focus on those that they helped and those that they were coming in, I mean, honestly, there are people who come into the ER already dead and they help to bring back. And if they focus on that and the impact that they've made on those people, um, that's why they keep coming to work each day. And so again, not to the same degree of seriousness, but from an RA perspective, or an undergraduate student perspective, or or a full time professional perspective, thinking about the students that you're able to help can be really, really, really rewarding. And a lot of the people who work in these kind of roles are coming from a helping standpoint and do the work because they enjoy helping others. And I think when we when we acknowledge the shadow side that they might feel honestly kind of ashamed of, I think one of the things we talk about with compassion. Uh, fatigue is this idea that you become desensitized and then you actually sometimes become really sort of angry and grumpy at the world. Um, there's this shattered sense of reality that things are not always okay and good pre bad things happen to good people. And also there's this feeling of, you know, why am I not the bright happy, shiny person I was when I first started the role? Or why am I not the bright, shiny person I was in, you know, July when we were going through training? Um, but normalizing that, that yes, these things are going to weigh on you. Yes, these things are going to affect you. And yes, you can become desensitized, you can even become irritable, or you can be angry at, at petty things. Um, one of the we talk about, you know, one of the ways to know that maybe a friend of yours is experiencing secondary traumatic stress is this idea that they become very impatient with what others might consider a crisis or an emergency that they don't because of the things they've dealt with. So if you have a student who comes to you that's really upset because they're failing a class or they're really upset because their partner broke up with them and you're angry at how trivial that topic is because yesterday you just helped a student through an actual life or death crisis, that can be a warning sign that you are approaching burnout, that you are approaching you know, this compassion fatigue zone, um, because you were becoming a lot more desensitized to some of the smaller issues or becoming more um, agitated because of the things that you've dealt with. I, I wanted to go back to the point that you mentioned, you said you really enjoyed talking about the topic, obviously, to professionals who've been in the industry for a long time, but also to undergraduate students or RAs. When you talk about compassion fatigue, how do you introduce it? Because you also talked about a slight hesitation sometimes in talking about it because like you mentioned if you're an ER doctor or if you work in uh, that profession in healthcare there is an expectation that you will acro come across really really difficult things uh, someone losing their life someone going through a, a difficult accident or whatnot but when you go into the world of student affairs you don't necessarily go into it knowing that you will deal with really really difficult things such as a student um, who dies by suicide or something leading up to that. How do you introduce the topic in undergrad students in a way that, I guess, doesn't scare them off from the profession that actually says this is OK, this is normal, but this is how we can, you know, work through it? 
Yeah, you know, one of the first things I do if I'm presenting or, I, or I've written some articles is I do start with my own story. I think talking about here I am, I've been in the field for a while, um, I've continued to want to work in residence life, and yet let me talk about some stories from when I was an RA or let me talk about why this isn't passion area of mine. And then I really, I mean, I, I, I pause when I present and I, I look them straight in the eye and I say, like, I want to acknowledge that I'm talking about this because we don't talk about it enough. Um, and so you may feel a little uncomfortable. You know, I, I always, I obviously start with trigger warnings about some of the topics I'm talking about, but then even five minutes in, I reiterate that those trigger warnings and I reiterate the idea that this is going to be something that maybe you've sat with some shame about. And it's okay if you don't want to talk about it in this space, but that my goal of this presentation is that you go talk about this in some other space. Um, I always try to bring it back to go talk to your supervisor, go talk to your best friend, go talk to a counselor, go talk to your parent, go talk to somebody about what you just learned today um, in this session. Because when we look at, I mean, I think the next stage, so there have been some really great researchers just in the last five years or so who have explored the idea of secondary traumatic stress and helping professions and to affairs and higher ed and residence life recently there there are two i mean i, I named one of them as, as being a good friend of mine who who did his dissertation topic on it but also i was part of a study with a man named dr jason lynch and that was also on this idea with higher ed professionals and and so it's become a topic recently that i've seen more and more literature about but the next step is, so what do we do about it, right? So so Dr. Eric Sorensen, who is the, the friend of mine that I've known since undergrad, who researched this, one of his passions is he wants to figure out what to do next. So how do we train staff? How do we prepare staff in um, how to mitigate these? And the first thing that we've learned while looking at the research um, when it comes to healthcare professionals is honest to goodness, talking about it. Um, that too often people think, well, I don't want to talk about how I'm feeling because it means I'm bad at my job or I'm not cut out for that job. And so um, it is really, really important that people talk about it. The other idea that's very similar to talking about it is supervisor support. Um, so feeling like you have a supervisor who is supportive to you can be a great mitigating factor. Interesting enough, it isn't even that your supervisor actually is supportive. They're, it's not that they score high on the supportive scale. It's the idea that you think they support you um, that is most important. And then training, training on preparing yourself for some of these things. And so, you know, Rob, you talked about it. It's, it's hard um, to have like a situation where, uh, you know, we can't do a training session on everything you might deal with in your role. Um, and even when we do talk about things like suicide or um, overdose or sexual assault, um, that are all really important topics. It's hard to train on how you're going to react when you deal with it, right? You can look at the, the book and the steps and the flip chart of how to deal with an emergency, but until you're thrusted into that emergency, you don't know how your body's going to react, how your mind is going to react in those situations. And so the more training we can do, the better, because it lets you at least have a foundation. Um, and often your brain takes over. Um, if you have the foundation, I've, I've worked with a lot of staff who even after a situation say, like, I feel like I had an out of body experience, you know, like I remembered, I recalled my training, I did my training, and I didn't even feel like I was thinking um, in that moment. And I think that that's, that's, good. That's good that you had that foundation um, because it allows you to then rely on your foundation and then acknowledge that you're going to uh, 
divert from that foundation a little bit because you might need to take a moment or you might need to breathe or you might have to uh, look something up and remind yourself what the next steps are. But having a foundation at least um, gives you a starting point. And so the three things are, you know, having some training, uh, supervisor support, or at least having a supportive supervisor, and then talking, processing after a situation and debriefing after a situation. And I'm a big fan of higher ed professionals uh, going to counseling. Um, I think that RAs and full-time professionals often think of that as something they refer others to. Um, but it, you know, we go through some very traumatic things. And so processing out um, is really important. And processing with a professional, I think, is even better. But that's the next step, right, is what do we do now that we know this is true? We've seen there's now been research study after research study that are showing, yes, hired professionals do experience compassion fatigue. Higher ed professionals do experience secondary traumatic stress. Now, what do we do about that? I think is what we're at um, right now beyond just those those three key, but pretty vague um, recommendations. It's an interesting point. And also, I suppose it's it's about contextualizing it into someone's real life as well, I suppose. Often, the things we experience as professionals can be extremely traumatic. You know, we have students, as you've said, who unfortunately have been victims of, of sexual assaults or students who die by suicide, overdoses, all kinds of things that happen during that time. But I suppose the reality and perhaps a, another element of helping people get used to the idea is actually to take some of the professional edge off it and to say, you know, this is a this is a life skill. This is a skill that you will need throughout your life. I mean, all of us will hopefully long live long, happy lives. But at the same time, we can't deny we're all going to go through quite heavy trauma in, in our years. You know, people we we care about may pass away or will certainly pass away. And, and lots of different things that we'll have to experience in our lives, loss and grief. And really, this is... This sort of transcends the student affairs element. I almost feel like we've turned into a psychology podcast, which is quite, quite, uh, quite exciting. Um, but, uh, you know, this transcends that. And I suppose that is also an important tool in, in helping people train and learn how to approach this. It's one of the things that um, whenever I've been involved in any counselling or received any counselling or therapy, one of the things that therapists has always said to me is that it's essentially exercise for the mind. It's about training your mind and getting those muscles in your mind or proverbial muscles in your mind stronger to be able to be more resilient against some of the things that are troubling you at that time or some of the challenges you have. And I suppose this is kind of the same thing where we're, you're essentially saying, look, we don't know how you as an individual may respond in this scenario. But if we help train those muscles in your mind and your body to expect that to know how to handle that and some of the things you may experience then I suppose people are, are going to respond in a slightly different way yeah absolutely and I think that I'm a better professional because I'm able to also give myself some grace you know I think about way back then right the situation that I dealt with when I was a new professional it was it was difficult on me and it was obviously difficult on my staff and in a lot of ways I don't think I was there for my staff in the, in a way that I would be now knowing that and I also blamed myself for the pain they were going through. Um, you know, I am in a field that obviously is is very helping centered, but I also am somebody who naturally loves to be able to, to fix things. And I had staff that I supervise, undergraduate staff who were really struggling. And, and it, 
And it was also the staff that I think didn't realize they were going to be struggling. You know, there were some that were triggered because of their own experiences. I had some staff who they themselves had dealt with depression and maybe had had suicide ideations in their life. And so when they saw, you know, a situation, even though they didn't know the student well, who died, they thought to themselves, wow, you know, three years ago, this could have been me. And so um, processing those emotions were, were emotions I wasn't necessarily prepared for because I was focusing on the students or the staff that knew the student who passed but also the the, the guilt of the those that, that didn't know the student and didn't really have the connection to the situation I had several of them who just really um, shut down felt like why are there even RAs if something this bad can happen what do I do for my students I feel so overwhelmed that I'd rather just not engage with people um, and those are the staff that I neglected because I wasn't thinking they were affected and I wasn't aware of the warning signs to look out for. And so now that I have a little bit more of that in my tool belt of some of the the signs of withdrawing, of anger um, that I can be more mindful of, and then you have language and vernacular to address it with them. Um, and to, no again, normalize, normalize, normalize. I think that's a huge part of it is there's nothing wrong with you because you're struggling with these emotions. Um, it's a natural thing that occurs during a traumatic incident or after a traumatic incident. And just because you weren't directly involved, just because you weren't involved with people who are directly involved doesn't mean that you can't also be affected. And so um, I think I'm a better professional now. Um, I'm much more mindful of my staff who responded. You know, uh, uh, we have a duty protocol. And I think about the um, co-worker of mine who was on duty that night and our director of residence life walked up to him and said, you know, I need you to give me the duty phone. And he was re really resistant. No, 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 I'm fine. Like I wasn't involved in this. I arrived after the fact. The police were already here. I really am fine. And she was persistent. No, you're going to give me the duty phone because you need to take care of you in this moment. You might not think that you're having an emotional moment, but it, it might hit you in five minutes. It might hit you in five hours. You might be at dinner. You might be in the shower. And all of a sudden, you're going to get a wave of emotions. And so she took that duty phone from him. And so I now think about that when I have students or staff who have been in a traumatic incident, even a facilities emergency. You know, your adrenaline is up. You felt like you needed to uh, deal with the situation quickly and effectively. And you're going to crash. You're going to have an emotional reaction to what you just went through. And so being more mindful of taking that duty phone away from them or telling them to take the morning off or, you know, um, whatever it might be for them, because those emotions are going to come in, in a wave and that wave can be immediate or that wave can be 12 hours from now. And so I feel like I'm a lot better of a professional as I've read more about this and realized, okay, there are natural human responses tra to trauma. There's natural human responses to responding to crisis or crisis circles and understanding that. I think it just makes me a better professional and makes me a better supervisor. And I think that's key, isn't it? When everybody has an awareness or a, le a level of training about compassion fatigue, what can happen? They can be become, as you say, a better professional, a better supervisor because they know what's 
going to come. They know the signs to spot and they know how to look after the welfare of the person who's dealt with the incident much better. Um, so there's just that greater awareness of their welfare, making sure they're okay and they have the time to look after themselves as well. And you're asking that supervisor in one sense to step up a bit more and take on a bit of that load so that the other person can process and do whatever they've gone through. I think that's really, really important. And one of the benefits of people understanding more about this subject and having particular training in it. What I want to go back to is the point on shame. I find that really interesting, probably because I have, for the second time, read one of my favourite Brene Brown books, and she talks about shame and vulnerability quite a lot in her research. But you talked about people have a sense of shame sometimes because they it's not normalised, they don't talk about it, um, and they feel that they should have been able to deal with the issue or incident better. And even you reference blaming yourself for the pain that maybe your team was feeling back in the early start of your career. Do you think, Sasha, like some of that is because we as professionals put an awful lot of pressure on ourselves to be excellent first time at our jobs and to do the best and be the best? Where do you think that comes from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I think, you know, um, one of I have a lot of phrases. My, my staff will say that I'm, you know, the, the queen of these little uh, sound bites. But one of the phrases I like to talk about with my new staff is I asked them and I said, hey, and and I'm not uh, trying to call out your high school track coach or your dad or whoever may have said this to you before, but how many of you have heard this idea of fake it till you make it? And so I wait for them to you know, raise their hands that they've heard fake it till you make it. And I tell them, that's great. Like I appreciate the, the intentionality behind that and this idea that, you know, eventually you'll get it. But I don't like the phrase fake it till you make it. I think that what I hear is fake it until you make a mistake so big that we have to backpedal. I would much rather you acknowledge what you don't know ask questions, be vulnerable, ask for clarification, get the instructions a third time, then then fake it. And I think that a lot of our new professionals, particularly those, you know, in the US for a lot of our uh, entry level positions, you're you're required to have a master's degree, and so that's a decent amount of studying and schooling. And so I think that a lot of our staff when they come out of that master's program, they think to themselves, well, you know, I have my entire undergraduate career and I was probably a student leader of some sort during that time and probably had some responsibilities uh, on me and some autonomy to to do a role, whatever role that may have been. And then I went into grad school and I had the theoretical framework and I learned about Chickering and Ashton and, you know, all of those. Uh, and then the third wave theorists and all of those theories. And so I should know what to do in these situations. And so I have very much seen staff who their first week or so they've struggled with something and it's usually a small something but that small something is a gateway to bigger somethings where they don't know how to do a, a software program or something that we did in training and they're worried about asking because it makes them seem like they either are incompetent or weren't paying attention or whatever and so i run training for my department and i you know jokingly say to them i'm the one who put together training and i know how much it is and it's like drinking from a fire hose and it is okay to say yeah i didn't catch that like that whole thing went right over my head or it was a very busy day or whatever it may have been and so i would rather staff feel like they can admit that they need a refresher or a reminder and that's just with training topics or, or you know or those sort of things but i think it, when you deal with crisis there's also this feeling of i was hired for this position because somebody trusted me to be able to know how to act 
And so I don't want to admit that I don't know how to act. And that is really harmful, I think, to them um, because it puts a lot of stress on them as if they're alone on an island and have to deal with all of their struggles by themselves. Um, Why do you have supervisors? Why do you have teammates? Why do you have colleagues if you have to deal with everything by yourself? And then also, I mean, pragmatically, it actually negatively affects the department in lots of ways and the and the division and the organization. Um, one, because it sets a culture that it's not okay to ask questions. Um, it sets a culture where burnout is going to happen sooner and quicker and, and more of it. And it also says a culture of, again, back to making a mistake. Like, I think that's when people's eyes get really big because I'm like, it's not just that I'm being very emotionally supportive to you and saying, no, 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 ask questions because I want you to feel like you know what you're doing. Okay, I'll be a manager for a second and say, ask questions because I don't want you to mess up. Um, and th- th- that takes resources and time away from us as a department. So it really is okay to be vulnerable and to say, I need more information. I need more support. I need to practice. I'm a big fan in training of doing tabletop exercises and and role-playing exercises. You know, with RAs, we have an activity called Behind Closed Doors, which is essentially a fake simulated room where they're dealing with a situation. So it might be responding to, you know, noise complaint that turns into they actually have alcohol in the room. Or it might be a student who says, hey, I need to talk to you. And when they say they need to talk to you, they they that they, you know, uh, were sexually assaulted. So we do these role playing activities with staff. Um, and we do that with professional staff as well to get them to practice responding um, in a safe environment where they could pause if they need to, or they can ask questions, or they can get good feedback from their colleagues. And I really think it's it's valuable exercises to do. But, you know, it all goes back to this idea that I think people feel like they have to act like they know what they're doing from the very beginning. Um, I also think, you know, just like in society, you know, we have the the, the Instagram version of your life. Um, we have the conference version of your life. You know, here I am going to a cool eye and presenting on uh, compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress and saying, oh, how do you mitigate the effects of it? And how do you not let this happen to you? Well, guess what? I have moments, I have many, many, many moments where I feel overwhelmed or I feel like I don't know how to handle a situation or I feel sick to my stomach after dealing with a situation. And I think one of the things we struggle with in a field, but I think we struggle with it as a society, is you're getting the presentation of the best practices. You're not always getting the presentation of the reality of practices. Um, And I think that shows in graduate school. I think that shows in conferences, webinars, podcasts, where you're getting some really great best practices. Um, But sometimes life doesn't go as you practiced. And I think that actually continues to perpetuate this idea that something must be wrong with me if I'm not getting it because the presenter got it um, or the author of the article got it. um, Why am I not getting it? So I think, you know, we don't see the real side of everybody's day to day. We don't see the real side. I've struggled. I struggled in 2020 quite a bit emotionally. I struggled in 2021. I mean, COVID has affected a lot of our work and there are days in which yeah, I know the right skills, I know the right uh, strategies, but I just want to go home and open a pint of ice cream. Uh, And I know that's not the healthiest way to handle it. I should be talking about my emotions, but I want to go sit on the couch with my dog and not talk to anyone. You know, it still happens even to people who understand why the best way to work through these emotions 
is not to shut down. I mean, I think sitting on a couch with a dog and an ice cream is a dream <laughs> set up any day of the week as someone who's wanted a dog for years. But Sasha, I too am the queen of phrases. And I have to say for a long time, fake it till you make it was probably the one that I used for myself. Not that I was teaching it to my team, but I was certainly in my mind saying it to me. But and probably over and over again, to be honest. But actually, I have been given it a rethink in recent years from things that I've read that very much resonate with what you're saying, that actually it's quite a dangerous term and you should be more vulnerable and it's okay to ask questions. But I, what I really love there is an awful lot of what you said, but also the conference version of yourself. Oh my God, I was nearly like shouting, yes, this is a thing. It's absolutely a thing. And not presenting the reality of practice as opposed to best practice that we aim to present. I think I did a conference presentation once where I was like, this is actually what goes on in uh, Res Life in the place that I work. Look, we ran this event and no one came, but no one ever talks about that. <laughs> this is actually a true thing that happens. Um, or this is what's difficult. This is how I'm trying to implement change and whatnot. Sorry, Rob, you were going to come in there and say something. I know you were. You're kind of like chomping at the bit. <laughs> no, I mean, there was, there was just so, sort of so much to take away really from that, but something that did pique my interest. And, and when I start, Rebecca will know exactly why it particularly piqued my interest. But uh-uh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing bad, but you you spoke about how obviously in, in the in the US the majority of people you would see in the in the roles that you're speaking about have have been through undergraduate studies and have often then gone to grad school uh, and have some academic experience in what they're doing and it was interesting to hear that actually that can be maybe not detrimental, but can cause almost a little bit of imposter syndrome where it's like, you know, I should know how to deal with this. If I understand the theory, I should be able to approach this situation with that theoretical logic and apply it. I found it really interesting that you said that because obviously being a a more UK focused podcast on, on average, we have a very different system over here. I'm sure you're aware that here in the UK, it's not often the case. Uh, In fact, those who have professional qualifications or even any qualifications in in higher education or student affairs is very minimal. It was part of the reason why myself and Rebecca started this podcast. And one of the things that uh, has always been difficult for me, especially since doing the degree, is the realization that I've spent X amount of my career without this fundamental theoretical baseline knowledge and reflecting back and going, well, I really wish I'd known this from the start. I really wish that I had this information because we so often in the UK in our roles learn on the job, which you know, has its pluses and minuses. And this is you know, not me criticizing the system, but it's a very different process to the uh, to the US. And uh, certainly I would probably turn around and say that having that academic information would have been incredibly helpful. But it's very interesting to sort of see that we're talking about normalizing it. And, and perhaps we can both sit here and say, well, the normalization of all of this is you can't get away from it you know you can be as educated as you want to be or you can be as experienced as you want to be of learning these things on the job and having those past traumas but you can't really ever escape it because it's a it's a reality of the jobs we're in and it's a human reality 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, there could be, and I'm sure you've already done these sort of conversations, but I could talk for over an hour on the the benefits of a master's required entry-level positions and the negatives. Um, but I, early in my career I was in, I mentioned the, so the state of Oregon is in the northwest corner of the United States. And I was part of a uh, association called Northwest of Cujo. Um, and so it is um, the U.S. states of like Oregon and Washington, right? That, that side of, of the U.S., but then it also goes up to British Columbia and Alberta um, and Alaska. And working with some of my Canadian colleagues, they also have, you know, they're in residence. Um, they do not have master's required positions. A lot of their positions are bachelor's required. Um, and talking through some of that with them, I think, you know, the the, the give and take there, we, we they, they articulated a lot of what you articulated, Rob, around once they got the degree, they did wonder, you know, would this have been beneficial earlier on? But I think, you know, the shadow side of the degree, and, and, and I would say I'm, I'm thankful that the staff I work with have the theoretical background and that we can discuss theory um, and how that can affect your students. I, I appreciate those conversations, but I think one of the negatives is, one, you feel like you have so much education, but does your education outpace your work experience? And then the other issue is you start putting yourself and others in boxes. You know, when you start talking about where student development looks like, do you start putting your students in those developmental boxes and assuming they should be at a certain stage that they may or may not be? But the same can happen with the professional staff, assuming that you need to be at a certain stage of your career or your experience or your knowledge um, and you start putting yourself in boxes. But that's a different topic, and it's not one that I necessarily would call myself an expert, but having friends who now teach um, in uh, graduate programs, and it's interesting because a lot of graduate programs have career faculty, you know, people who have never been professionals before. They went straight through, they got their master's, and they got their PhD, and they've been teaching, and then there are some programs where uh, the faculty that, that have a PhD have years and years and years of professional experience and bring that into the classroom. Um, and that's also really interesting. And like I said, I mean, I don't have enough knowledge about all of that, but I can tell you that, um, you know, it's interesting to think about what benefits do you get from having the real experience and what what benefits do you get from having the theoretical, the research um, experience. And I think there's space for all of it. I think uh, Rob and I sometimes have conversations about what it would be like to work in North America in a student affairs type of uh, role and whether or not people, if something happens or you want to run a new campaign or introduce a new process, do you sit around the table and go, well, actually, if you look at the theory of X, Y and Z, um, it suggests that you implement it this way or that you know the research says this, whereas you don't really hear that happening so much in the UK. Uh, yeah, we're just sort of like in- YOLO. giving it a go (laughs) it's not the case everywhere like there there is more research coming out there it's more uk like relevant but um i often wonder if that is that how it works over north america i was gonna say rebecca it would be interesting you present at a cool i mean they ask for theory even for program proposals which i think is interest would be interesting then from for people from the uk or from um south african institutes or, or canadian institutes um that even in program proposals they ask you to sort of connect that to theory 
That's when I'd have to um, present the conference version of myself, Sasha. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to a another point that you said a few points back, and that was the phrase processing out, where you mentioned that you were a fan of higher ed professionals utilising counselling or attending counselling to support them in their positions, no matter what it is they've dealt with. And I wondered, what does that look like in your department or with your team or in other institutes that you've worked in? Is it different for everybody, depending on their role or or does everybody go to like group sessions? How does it work? What works best do you find? Yeah, well, I think one thing to start with the foundation, because I don't know what your um, experiences are like or what, you know, people in the UK listening, what the structure is, is that so I supervise a team of 10 individuals. Each of them runs a building or co-runs a building. And they all have one-on-one conversations with me. Like weekly, we meet one-on-one. And yes, I spend some of that one-on-one going over some checklists oh have you done this thing or is this thing in that you need but that tends to be the shorter part of those conversations the bulk of the process is really an opportunity to process how their week has been going what are major things you've been working on again sort of this this ability for them to just talk about how they're feeling in their role each week um, and so while I'm not a counselor your supervisor's not a counselor that's one way in which to process through things you're dealing with and so I try to spend a bulk of my one-on-one conversations to be about them you know every so often we might be dealing with a major student thing that we're checking in on or a parent thing that we're checking in on that can take up a you know a chunk of the time but I would say I spend you know 35 to 45 minutes of that hour talking about them um, and how they are doing and how they are working through, oh, wow, you had a really heavy week or you were on duty and I can see what you dealt with. How are you feeling after all of that? How are you taking care of yourself? Like I try to ask those questions. I also ask questions like, what is your biggest stressor uh, right now? Um, What is bringing you the most joy right now? And then I ask questions like, what do I owe you? What can I do for you? Um, As a way to, again, it's, they don't then have to ask for it or they don't have to figure out a way in which in our conversation to say, well, I'm really stressed right now and here's something you could take from me. Uh, They know every week I'm going to ask, is there something I owe you? that I said I was going to do? And is there something that I can do for you? Um, And then realistically, you know, if they say, yeah, you can do my job next week, then my answer is going to be no. Um, But realistically, they can share things that maybe they're working on that I could assist with, or maybe something really small, like, oh, I have to call this student back. It's not something that's about me. It's I need to give them the answer to this question they had. But now I need to find 15 minutes of my schedule to call them back okay, I'll call them back. You know, that's an easy thing. If it's not a a give and take conversation, it's simply relaying some information. Um, And so I try to do that. And then because the people, so my institution has a graduate graduate program, um, a student affairs and higher education program. And so some of the people that I directly supervise or indirectly, as in I supervise their supervisor, is it, are in the graduate program. And so because they are students, we have a student counseling center. And so they can attend counseling like undergraduates can because they are taking uh, graduate classes. That's also true. I have one individual that I supervise currently who is in the PhD program. And so he also use, pays student fees. And so he can go to the counseling center and utilize counseling services. For full-time staff, we have... Um, 
some really great like employee assistance programs is what they're called in the U.S. And so it's opportunities to be referred out to counseling. Um, and then depending on your institution and what your health care looks like, some institutions you can attend X number of counseling sessions as part of your insurance premium. Others, maybe it's a reduced cost. So that depends. It's not, um, we don't have universal health care in the U.S. And so unfortunately, it is not always equitable. I've worked at schools that help, that counseling is absolutely 100% part of our uh, insurance package. I've worked at schools that unfortunately that isn't been a part of the insurance package. But even when it's not, we usually have a division of our HR, Human Resources Office, that is happy to talk to staff about what their options are, what are low-cost options in the community, what are ways you can adjust your work schedule to allow you to attend counseling. So um, we really encourage our staff to utilize those employee assistance programs to learn more about their resources. And it's great because it's a confidential place, um, not only going to HR, that side of it being confidential, you're not telling your supervisor, I want to go to a counselor, although I hope your supervisor would be supportive, but it's someone outside of your supervisor that you can talk to about your counseling options. Um, and then obviously going to a counselor is that opportunity to go to a confidential place and talk through things. So at my current institution, if you're a student, if you're taking classes, you're able to utilize our counseling center. If you're a full-time staff member and not attending any classes, you'd be referred out to community. Um, and then we have done, we've worked with the counseling center to do some group sessions, um, both for graduate students, so a weekly counseling session for grad students who are in higher ed or grad students who work in residence. Some years it's really popular, some years it dies because nobody's interested in going and that's fine. Um, and then we've worked with the counseling center to have one-offs. So we just dealt with a really traumatic situation. We're going to bring a counselor in to our staff meeting or we're going to bring it into the staff meeting with the undergrads. And um, I'm really lucky at Miami, we have a program here that is a liaison. So I have a liaison from the counseling center, a person that is dedicated to me. And my colleague has a different liaison that's dedicated to them and anything under our team, our umbrella. And so that's my full-time staff, my graduate staff, my undergraduate students, and then those buildings. And so when there is an issue, um, so I've had while at Miami University, which is in, in Oxford, Ohio, um, I've had a student death and we said, okay, we, we want to bring a counselor in. Um, it wasn't me cold calling the counseling center. It was, I have a contact person that is dedicated to me that I know and have built a relationship with who I contacted and said, hey, this happened, I'm sure you're aware. We would love for you to come in and talk with the students that were affected and then individually with the staff. And so that's not considered a, a paid counseling session. It's a work-related incident occurred that we're having a counselor come in for um, and they voluntarily come in and, and have those conversations. Again, if it's going to last longer than one or two conversations, then that staff member is referred to the community. But if something happens within your community, I'm really lucky to have that liaison who would be more than happy to come in and process with that staff member. That's incredibly comprehensive. It's pretty amazing. I really like that you have that kind of direct contact. So if something just does happen, you can go then straight away as opposed to spending the time to try and find out who that person is and then get referred to somebody else. I know at the University of Leeds where I work, we have our own kind of like HR team. And so if I needed to contact somebody, I could go straight to the HR team, which would definitely 
reduce the amount of time or labour involved to try and get something for somebody. Um, you mentioned about, obviously, because of the US and healthcare not having this universal system like we do in the UK, which we are incredibly lucky and blessed to have, it's not always equitable. Have you seen a difference there or an impact whereby, it, because it's not equitable, people can't get the support they need when they need it or have the university always been able to step in and actually support them? I guess the question is, has compassion fatigue or elements of it not being addressed quickly enough because of the healthcare system you have in place or has it always been something you've been able to resolve? Yeah, that's a that's a big question and hard for me Sorry. to Sorry. <laughs> I mean, because absolutely, you know, when I'm talking to people outside of the US, it is difficult to talk about access to healthcare period, but also mental health. Um, I think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a lot, very huge advocate to mental health and mental health resources. And, and the reality is no, there isn't appropriate access to mental health care. And that's a, that's true for any uh, U.S. citizen, I think. But I think, you know, obviously then that would spread into if you work in, in student affairs or in residence life or you work at a university. I think I'm very lucky, though, and I do want to really give great shout out to I've worked at five institutions. And I would say that, like, while the city I lived in or the state I lived in or the type of healthcare I had uh, may not have been inclusive or may have been harder to access uh, mental health resources. Um, and they try. I mean, there's obviously some really great programs, but the reality is, is it perfect? Of course not. But I've been lucky that I think each institution I worked at would have worked, would have worked as hard as they could if I needed something or, you know, and I being any employee. Which is why, you know, it is great that we have these employee assistance programs. And, and again, they're going to, they have those resources all in one location and, and somebody who would be willing, a, a HR representative that could process through what your options are. And, and the, the negative though, is that that is not always equitable because money is usually a factor. So like if I wanted to see a counselor, I absolutely could, but I might be paying for that session out of pocket. And that might be okay for me and where I am financially, but that may not be as okay for somebody who is a new professional or somebody who is juggling being a single parent or someone who is supporting their their parents uh, if, they're, if their parents are living with them or are, are ill. So yeah, that is... You know, I'm, I'm very privileged in where I am currently financially that I have great, I have great insurance, but I also have great savings. And so just like if I was to break my leg and not be able to work for a few months, I'd be okay. I would also be okay if all of a sudden I had a mental health crisis and I needed hospitalization, medication, a counselor. Um, I have savings. Um, that is not true for everyone. Um, and so again, I'm not nearly educated enough to talk about the entire U.S. healthcare system, um, especially mental health, but I would say no, it is not equitable. And while the institutions, I have full faith in the schools I've worked at to do everything they can to support a staff member, the reality is, is that for some of our staff members, they are paying out of pocket if they need to go to a counselor regularly or they're paying out of pocket if they need an emergency appointment. And that's just, that's, that's not because the school I work at has bad um, health insurance. That's how, I mean, things like, I mean, here's just another, let's not even talk about mental health. Our, my dental insurance is not part of my health insurance. Like in the U S health insurance literally is your, your 
bones, well, your teeth are bones too, but you know, your, your body and your bones. Um, if you want an eye doctor appointment, you want a dentist appointment, you want a, a counseling appointment, it's a different kind of insurance. Um, and so that is wild to friends of mine who are, who live in Canada or the UK or, or, um, France and people who I know in other countries who are like, how is going to the eye doctor, not a doctor. Um, but our insurance is, is broken up like that. And I've worked at schools that have had really great dental insurance or eye vision insurance. And I've worked at some schools that that's just not part of the package. Um, and I would say mental health is absolutely not always the first thing in the package. And so not everybody has the same equitable access to to mental health care. I mean, it's completely fascinating. But what comes to mind is that what I would be concerned about or maybe it's a worry that even you have or you've come across is that particularly with compassion fatigue or when someone's been affected by something that's happened in their role if they don't have a supervisor or people in the team who know they've been affected by that or know that they should do something people again coming back to shame are reluctant to come forward because one they may feel they should have been able to deal with it but also what if they have to take time off work and they can't afford it and they can't afford healthcare? And so it becomes even more complex, really, doesn't it? And Rob, I know you've, you, I know, Rob, you will have loads to say on this matter. Well, I mean, I suppose, Sasha, for, for what it's worth, certainly in the UK, things like mental health um, treatments are, I suppose, probably the one element of our health system that lags behind the majority of the rest of it. Um, mental health care in the UK is, is, good but it's overwhelmed uh which is probably no surprise and we do have employee assistance programs in the uk uh, not everybody has one or i would imagine most universities do nowadays or, or at least in the sector and the education sector most would but certainly most of the time you are paying for any consultations that come through a referral from an employee assistance program so certainly on the mental health front although the the general principle of healthcare is very different I think the problems exist just in a slightly different way. Certainly, if you are referred through our National Health Service for support, you're often limited to, say, six sessions with someone for for, for no cost. And uh, the last I saw, the majority of the, the wait time was around something like six to eight months, by which time either that intervention is too late or really it, it's kind of not of as much use as it was at the time. So I do think we still, we do share similar concerns there and there are similar issues with the way that it is structured. Very different backgrounds <laughs> to it, but it's certainly the same kind of issue. Something that I have seen evolve a little bit in university is certainly this was one of my prior uh, employers was that within the uh, well-being team, as we were called at the time, uh, I was part of the international student advice team uh, who sort of advised on visas and immigration, but also kind of acted as the, the central hub for all international students, no matter what the issue was. We were part of a wider team that included well-being, counselling, um, whole life, which is our was our equivalent of res life, essentially. But as a big department, we started investing in getting members of staff who were essentially clinical supervisors for the counselling team, uh, as most counsellors and therapists in the UK will all have a supervisor that they go to. But that supervisor was there not just for the counselling team, but for all of us. So it was a paid member of staff by the university there to support 
all of us with any sort of professional issues that transcended the usual stuff you would speak to a line manager about. So stuff you may go to a counsellor for, that's what that individual was there for. And I certainly think that that is a potential uh, route towards supporting people in the institution because it is very difficult. Mental health care, no matter where you are, is really tricky. It is something that a lot of people are in need of and in need of support with. It can be prohibitively expensive. And I think that that is potentially somewhere where institutions can look to consider going forward, whether that that could be something that they invest in, because these problems aren't going away. This focus on mental health support and the, the well-being of our students will only continue to become more and more important as time goes on, especially as the, the sort of culture shift in, in what education is here for uh, changes and is perhaps an option to to alleviate some of the pressure on health services and also to reduce the financial burden, potentially. Um, I don't know if anything like that exists in the US or if there are any principles that, that embed somebody in the um, institution to address it. Yeah, I would say some of the concepts you brought up definitely exist at some institutions. Again, it's just it's just not uniform. Um, even access to counselors. I mean, just talking about, let's talk about a student, right? Um, so students pay student fees. And I would say that there are absolutely institutions where being able to see a counselor is six months wait or um, difficult to do or your student insurance package only covers three appointments. And there are other institutions where they they have a quite um, large counseling center staff. The ability to see a counselor, at least for a triage situation, an emergency situation, the same day. There are institutions that have something called a counselor in residence, um, which I love. There are schools where there's literally counselors that live within the residence halls. Um, and maybe they don't do their counseling appointments there, but the fact that they're just visible in the halls, um, available in case there's an emergency situation is amazing. But again, you're talking about staffing, you're talking about pay, you're talking about a accommodations. You know, they're not going to live in a, a 13 by 11 residence hall room, right? There needs to be an apartment attached to the building that, that could accommodate a counselor and possibly their family. Um, and then, so there are institutions that have really great um, systems set up, even just for students. Like, I think that's the first step is how do we get students access to counseling? I think the fact that my current institution has this liaison for each team is really great. Um, so there's a dedicated individual, they come to training, my staff knows their name, knows their email address, my even my undergraduate RAs know who their liaison is, I think is amazing because it humanizes, it has that connection, it has a faster response. Um, but that's not universal. Um, and then once you get past the students, um, then it becomes even more um, dependent on the institution and dependent on the resources. And, you know, in the US, the other system is state schools versus private schools and how they do things and what access to money they have and endowments and and that sort of stuff is very 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 different as well and obviously my insurance i'm a state employee by working at a state institution and so um there's some benefits to that for sure i think about my parents um their benefits and their jobs versus my benefits i probably have better benefits than they do because i work for the state um but there's also limitations because if you work from the state like you talked about your um, national health care and being a state employee has a similar, different, but similar idea where there is in-network doctors and there is wait times that are usually longer because you're a, you know, on state, the state health insurance plan versus if you worked at a private institution and they may have, they may, may is an important word there because not all state, not all private schools are 
you know, majorly well-funded, but a lot of private schools maybe have more endowment or more money. And that may mean that their staff have slightly higher salaries or slightly better insurance packages. Again, it differs from institution to institution. So I think, I mean, the main, if the main takeaway is working at a U.S. institution, one school to the next, we're not very uniformed in a lot of our things. And, and especially when we're talking about things like access to healthcare, access to mental health, you know, and there was part of my presentation that I do with student staff. I talk about some schools that were in the news for RAs who felt burned out and didn't have access to counseling. There was a, a pretty, this is a little older now, but there was a school in, in California state um, where there was an RA who, who died by suicide. And as part of that conversation, looking back, at some past issues she brought up. One of the issues she brought up was that um, she had such a long, long wait to see a counselor and brought up job-related stressors. So wanted to talk to a counselor because she had a pre-existing mental health diagnosis, but then it was compounded by some stress that she was getting from the RA role and so really wanted to go meet with a counselor. And when they went to go schedule the counseling appointment, it was three months from today. And, and sadly, she, she did not make it three months from that day. Um, and so, you know, there are some situations that have definitely made the news around access to, to good mental health. And I think the, the number one is just sort of, Rob, what you mentioned, it's, it's wait time, right? Like they're just, they're overwhelmed. Um, the staff is overwhelmed overwhelmed. And so we have a pretty good system at Miami in that if it really is a student who's in an emergency situation, we have a way to get them into a triage appointment. Um, But that means that we need to know that it's an emergency. Like they have to report to someone that it's an emergency to get them an emergency appointment. Otherwise, if they're just calling the health center, they may, the counseling center, they may have um, a longer wait. And that's true, not just my institution, but pretty much all institutions. If anything, I think what makes it probably even more trickier if you're working in the US or choosing to work there is you have to really understand the package that's been offered to you before you accept or decline an offer and I'm sure universities are probably trying to put the best package together in order to attract the best talent a lot to think about I know a lot of professionals who work in student services or student affairs in the US who want to come to the UK, but I'm not sure of many who want to do the opposite. And I'd love to one day, but it's something that you certainly have to think about in terms of just managing your own mental health and the trials and tribulations of the job and what the the package or or offer can offer you. I have a final question for you, Sasha, if that's okay. And it kind of ties into compassion fatigue in the sense that it's probably why it's a subject close to your heart because, like you said, you love to help people. You get great satisfaction from that. But there's something that you talk about um, a lot on social media and I see you tweet every now and again is uh, being of service in your role. So I know you volunteer and you put yourself forward for all sorts of things. And I think you did a tweet recently where how you learned about being of service and why it's important from somebody I think who trained you or you worked with some time back. Um, and a lot of us in this profession like to be a service or are drawn to the role for that very reason. Certainly when, if I have a difficult time, I remind myself why I do the work that I do. And it's because I love being a service, not just to my team or to the institutions that I work for and represent, but most importantly to the students that I support and who I support in residence. 
What does being a service mean to you and why are you particularly passionate about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the the tweet that you're referencing, I, I had the opportunity to do a, a social media takeover for Kuai, um, which is, you know, the, the housing association um, that, you know, Rebecca, you mentioned we met at that conference. And one of the things that Kuai sort of talks about is, you know, making campus home. And I, and this idea this in, that Kuai invests in you, um, um, you know, really tries to, to warm your heart with that message. But I think about, you know, giving what what I can give back um, to both the profession, to those that have given to me, to new professionals coming up. A lot of that is my, my time because the reality is, you know, I, I also try to, to give with things other ways like presenting or giving money. But, you know, these associations are vol- mostly volunteer. And so... I try to give my time to the things that I feel like I get things from. Um, and so if there's an association that has, I, I learned some great things from, or I, there's a, uh, a journal or a magazine that I feel like I've read some really great articles from, I want that journal to continue. Um, and so I write for that journal because me writing for that journal means they have another issue they can publish. And by having another issue they can publish means there might be other articles I want to read um, in that same journal. And so for me, I think it's it's this idea that, um, you know, if we want to think about what the future of higher ed looks like, why not be there to help shape it um, and support it? And so while I don't believe that I am the end all be all um, of this field, I think that if I want to make sure it succeeds, I need to invest some time into it. Um, and so I try to do that. And I try to role model that. And so every opportunity I have, um, and I know, like I go to the conference and yes, I paid for this conference to attend, but I also volunteer at the conference because the conference probably could not go on or it couldn't go on for the price that we paid. It would be more than we paid if it wasn't for volunteers at those conferences. And so I made a commitment pretty early on in my career, um, shaped by a conversation I had with a former mentor, uh, Richard DeShields, who I knew when I was an undergrad. Um, to this idea that, you know, give what you can. And if that's one cup of coffee worth, worth a financial donation, do that. If it's one hour of your time, do that. And so um, I want these things to continue for generations to come. I also want them to shift and you know, change appropriately, but I want them to be there. I want those resources to be there for the next group of student affairs professionals. And I think right now, what I feel like I can do to shape that the most is, is to give of my time. Um, so I try to volunteer at conferences. I try to volunteer by presenting. I try to volunteer by writing articles, serving on committees um, whenever whenever I can. But I also acknowledge that not everybody can do that um, because I'm also not trying to get everybody to, to work themselves. I mean, talk about Imagine uh, fatigue, you need to know your limits. Um, and so that may not be right for everybody, but for me, um, giving of my time seems to be a world worthwhile investment for me and a worthwhile investment to the organizations and the places that I give my time. I absolutely love that. And I actually do love that you reference kind of the compassion fatigue side of it and 
knowing your limits because I have to say um, I can be quite guilty of that I love volunteering for things I love helping the sector in some way shape or form in the UK but equally sometimes I can say yes to too many things and then I wonder why I'm, I'm tired or I'm getting snappy with my team <laughs> Sasha that was an absolutely fantastic and really interesting conversation I absolutely loved that I knew you were going to be nothing short of brilliant and you were uh, Rob do you have any final questions or comments before we sign off just one last thing I, I kind of wanted to say really was that uh, for sake of of being uh, for normalizing and for sake of trying to echo the general approach that our podcast has tried to take since its inception is really just to say to everybody listening that we've talked a lot this evening about obviously compassion fatigue and some of the challenges that you you may experience during your time uh, in life as well as in your professional life and I think the one thing I would say is that everybody's trauma and their trauma experience is different so we've talked a lot about some really major events um, like student deaths and overdoses and all kinds of things but trauma can take a lot of different shapes and sizes for a lot of different people and I suppose for everybody listening out there you know COVID has been incredibly traumatic for all of us but there are day-to-day things that we all experience which may well be traumatic and be adding to that um, jug uh, that you have that that may start overflowing at some point and really it's just to kind of say that uh, we appreciate that everybody listening um, will have a different experience of this that certain things will push your buttons that may not other people and and that doesn't make you any different or any less able than anybody else Uh, it just means that a lot of things that you may find really difficult other people have different responses to we talked a lot about how to expect a response you never really know how you'll respond and I think that's okay Um, and I think I would echo everybody here in saying that we're all pretty stressed Uh, generally over the last couple of years in particular it's been very difficult road uh, but everyone's doing a really great job keep doing what you're doing and uh, I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to our chat this evening well said Rob and I would simply like to echo that by saying I hope you all have a wonderful break that you get plenty of time to rest and relax and spend some quality time with friends family and loved ones We'll be back in 2022, and I simply cannot believe it's 2022, but we will be back in 2022 with some new episodes and some new bite-side episodes that myself and uh, Rob have been thinking about. It's a little secret squirrel project, if you may, but we look forward to bringing you more content in 2022. Until then, have a wonderful break, and we'll see you then. I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire It's hyper walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instant it Unless they say there's free drinks and food